Lucy. And I'm Andy. Welcome to McCourtcast, McCourt's People Podcast. This week, we caught up with Professor Pam Hurd and Professor Don Moynihan. Thank you guys so much for joining us. How are y'all doing today? Good. How are you doing? Pretty good. Excited. Doing great. Enjoying the <laughs> sunny weather after a couple uh, a couple days of dreariness and cold, at least on my end. I think we'll go ahead and jump right into it. So thanks again for, for both of y'all for joining us. This is actually the first one of these we've done with two um, guests at the same time. So this is going to be fun. Um, <laughs> for this first question, this one's actually for Don, uh, but Pam, please feel free to chime in as well. As we approach the one-year anniversary of Georgetown's transition to a largely virtual format, we continue to live through a time where many opportunities for in-person connection have been severed. At the same time, people are connecting more virtually through a huge number of different platforms from social media to video conferencing. Don, can you tell us about your experience with Twitter and how you have built a following of thousands of people you can reach with your tweets? And um, what value do you find in Twitter as a platform? Sure. And uh, I think Pam might end up chiming in about some of the downsides of Twitter when I'm done, but I'll let her her do that. Um, So, uh, you know, I am a social media skeptic, and it wasn't until I was talking with a colleague who was on Twitter, um, and this was just after Ferguson happened and there were protests in Ferguson, and I was complaining about the downsides of social media. And his argument was that social media, and in particular, Twitter gave you access to real-time information about what was happening at these sorts of events that was both um, less filtered and more uh, rapid than you would read in the mainstream media or the New York Times. And so that's sort of what got me on Twitter. And then uh, uh, I used to work at University of Wisconsin-Madison, and at one point our governor there took it into his head to remove the search for truth from the university's mission statement. And, and that was sort of a turning point for me in that it really motivated me to be something more than just someone who occasionally tweeted out about his work, to be much more engaged and and uh, visible and talking more about sort of general politics on Twitter as a medium. And so that, that's been a few years now. And I think some of the lessons I would sort of take away from that is that, you know, you can build up a following if you're willing to be online a lot and, and really learn about the modes of discourse and what's driving uh, discourse on Twitter in any particular day. Um, and I think you can also attract the following if you use humor to, to raise important points. I mean, satire has historically been a really good way at pointing out problems and hypocrisies in, in how uh, people see governance around them. Um, and if there's sort of a meta theme to my, my Twitter feed is that uh, there's been this ongoing decline or salt on the quality of governance and reason and the failure for uh, people to live up to the values that they proclaim to be important in the United States. And that's a, that's a meta theme that resonates, I think, with a lot of people or has done over the last 10 years or so. And I, I think... As an academic, you can bring um, maybe two things to the table. 
with something like Twitter. One is that you can explain the world to people using your expertise. You can tell them, hey, there's something you read in the news. Let me help you understand what's going on behind that. And so, for example, at the end of the Trump administration, President Trump tried to turn a lot of career employees into political appointees. And it was sort of inside baseball and not a lot of people were paying attention to it. But that's something that I study and I could explain to people, here's why this is important. Here's how it's going to connect the things like the quality of COVID distribution uh, of vaccine processes, right? That really does have, have some bigger impact. Um, the second thing academics can do, I think, is tell members of the public something they don't know. Right. Um, and so the, the theme that actually both Pam and I have sort of tried to establish um, is about the frictions people experience in their interactions with government. And we'll, we can talk more about that later. But we frame this as administrative burdens. And we've sort of made this like a, a, a mini industry on Twitter where now lots of people are interested in this topic and they share ideas about it and they talk about its relevance to policy. Um, and so I think that also then tells us something about the value of Twitter for academics. Like the the default approach of academics is, you know, you publish a paper and you you say, "Here's my paper on Twitter," or you complain about a faculty meeting. <laughs> and I think that's sort of a limited value. It, it's definitely helpful to disseminate your research. Like it's sort of like owning a billboard where thousands of people might look at that billboard. And if you have something interesting to say, it's a great way to share research. Um, but it's also a great way to sort of find a community and build a community of people who have shared interests. And so from our point of view, we've connected with people in the civic tech community who have similar interests that we probably never would have found within academia mostly through social media. Um, you also, I think, find different perspectives on Twitter. Um, and uh, you can also sort of tap into that. Like, so sometimes I will start working on a paper that maybe is a little bit outside of my area and I'll just sort of post a question and say, hey, Twitter brain, um, what do you know about the use of the term fraud during the reconstruction period? And a couple of historians will respond. Um, so, so I think there is quite a lot of value. Um, I also don't want to uh, underestimate the fact that it's also highly addictive and probably not always a great use of time. <laughs> I, but it, I think it's, you know, for us, or, and for me at least, I feel like it's it's been worth that investment. Yeah, I mean, I one of the things I've loved about Twitter is actually professionally, um, there's sort of an academic Twitter. <laughs> and so it's a way to connect with uh, colleagues around the country, um, uh, a way to connect over your research. Um, and it's just, it's actually, I know it has a reputation of being kind of rough and tumble, um, but in certain segments of the kind of Twitter world, like the academic community, it can actually be quite lovely. Um, and I've gotten to know people and new colleagues over Twitter. Um, and I have sort of two separate streams of research. I have a whole kind of survey methods, um, health stream of research and then the more policy research. And in in some ways, people from those different communities have gotten to know other parts of my research. So my health colleagues have gotten to know my administrative burden work a lot uh, more, honestly, via Twitter. So it can be a lovely platform, if not a little time consuming, if you're not careful. <laughs> well, so do you have any strategies for, for kind of finding that balance of like, 
I'm going to spend, like, I'm going to engage this much on Twitter, but then maybe I have a strategy for disengaging when I need to. Um, Do you have any advice there? You know, it's a good, like, if you have five minutes, like, if you have a small block of time between meetings or whatever, it can be sort of useful that way. Um, I think our children are actually natural. naturally good at telling us to get off Twitter. <laughs> um, That's so, funny. so yeah, like there's, there's the, there are different ways, uh, different ways to kind of catch yourself a little bit. <laughs> yeah, I, I think my grand theory of productivity is like in any given hour, you can work pretty productively for 45 or 50 minutes. And then you need 10 minutes an hour at least to goof off a little bit. And that can mean, you know, you go to the New York times website you um, sort of take a quiz on BuzzFeed. But, you know, for me, I, I spend that time on Twitter. Now, there are, there are times when you end up spending a chunk of time on Twitter because the national attention is, is really focused on one issue. So it basically on January 6th, while we were watching the insurrection, I was pretty much on Twitter almost all that day. And, it, you know, that can be sort of disruptive because you can't, really work while this is going on. But also it, it's a reflection of very real things that are happening in our society that are then, again, as with the Ferguson example earlier, you're sort of seen in real time. And as long as you're somewhat skeptical about sources of information and can sort through uh, misinformation, you know, provides a granularity and depth that you, you're not gonna really see in, in a lot of regular media coverage. Well, well, I'm definitely not a Twitter whiz. And Don, I know you are because you've popped up on my feed and I don't even follow you. That's how famous you are on Twitter. Well, you should follow a, me. I, mean, uh, I will. There's I no will. excuse I just, now. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was when I first started and I was like, gosh, Don Moynihan, who's that? I, I know that name. And then I was like, oh, yep, he's a professor. I've seen him. <laughs> um, but anyways, you are actually originally from Ireland. Could you tell us a little bit about your journey from Ireland to the United States and what the continental transition was like? Yeah, that, that's correct. And uh, people may not pick that up from my accent, um, partly because I've moved around a lot. But I left Ireland when I was a graduate student. So I, I, w- I went to the University of Limerick, um, which is in the southern part of Ireland. It's right next to County Kerry, which is where I grew up. So I, I basically grew up in a fairly rural part of Ireland uh, in sort of very lovely country, uh, went to college, which was the first time I really lived in the city. And then at the end of my four-year experience, there was a, a scholarship um, that would bring a student from Limerick to Syracuse University uh, that I uh, became eligible for. And Syracuse at the time and still has this very strong program in public administration. And that was my area of study at, um, at Limerick. And so the, the University of Limerick decided in, in their wisdom that, hey, there's the student who's interested in this topic. Syracuse is really good at it. Why don't we uh, um, create a scholarship to let him go there? Uh, and so it was, it was sort of a little bit of happenstance. I had not a really long-term plan to go into academia when I moved to the U.S. Uh, one of the attractions of the program is that it was a one-year degree, and then I would leave. I could do something else, so it wasn't a, a long-term commitment. But while I was there, I started to work with some professors 
on their research projects. And then I got sort of hooked into research as a bug, uh, um, at, at, you know, something that I really found appealing. And I applied to the PhD program at Syracuse and I just sort of stuck around. Um, so, it, you know, it's one of those things where it wasn't especially well planned, um, it, but it, it was just one of those sort of turning points that ended up shaping my life. When I graduated from my PhD program, I looked around at the academic job market and, and really decided the U.S. was where I wanted to spend um, uh, the rest of my career. So since the time you left Ireland and until you arrived at McCourt, you've lived and worked not only in New York, but also in Michigan, Texas, Wisconsin, and England. So that's a lot of moving around, but also an amazing array of places. Do any of those stand out as places you'd love to return to, even if it's just for a chance to visit? Uh, yeah, and I'm also feeling pretty old now. Um, <laughs> so, I, I mean, I, I think the, the, the sort of lesson there is that uh, – it's really nice to live in a lot of different places. Like, so basically I've lived in the Northeast of the United States, Texas, which is its own thing completely. It's the <laughs> South, but it's also Texas. Um, and in a couple of places in the Midwest. Um, and you start, you appreciate what's great about all of those individual places. Um, and I, you know, I especially liked living in the Midwest um, be, before I moved back to the, to the East coast. Um, I think, uh, in addition to sort of maybe appreciating different places and different people with different perspectives more if you actually live in them for a certain period of time. Um, of the places that I lived, I, I probably enjoyed Oxford the most. And so that was the place I lived in England, which was Oxford. We we spent a year at Oxford University. And that, you know, it's just sort of a magical place. I mean, they literally shot scenes from Harry Potter in various buildings there. It's, it's, it, it just was a wonderful, very pleasant environment that also happened to be pretty close to, to where I was living uh, or where my folks were living back in Ireland. So it was easy to visit them. Um, so, you know, I would love to, you know, spend another summer or sometime like that in, in Oxford again, just to soak up um, this that sort of one one of a kind atmosphere you get from a university that's that's a thousand years old. <laughs> Pam, we know that you also enjoy traveling. Can you tell us any places that you hope to visit after it's hopefully safe to travel internationally? Yeah. Um... Well, uh, to some extent, um, I travel a lot for work, but haven't <laughs> for the past right. year. Um, and so I really miss, I have collaborators um, really all around the world. I have a bunch of collaborators at Oxford. I have collaborators at a lot of the big Midwestern R1s and on the West Coast. And so I'm, I, I really miss those trips. <laughs> <laughs> I miss going to Oxford. I miss... Um, I miss going out to the West Coast. I miss, yeah, like I just sort of miss a lot of that uh, professional travel. And in particular, I'm I'm still running a big data collection project at uh, University of Wisconsin, which is where I was before we came to Georgetown. Um, and so it's been it's been a little challenging continuing to run that project without without being there as frequently as I had been able to do kind of mini trips uh, from DC. So um, I'm, I'm looking forward to all that again. Um, and then just general travel. Yeah, like I'm, I'm looking forward to going back to Europe and um, 
uh, just ironically, just to getting on a plane again. I, I really am looking forward to that. Yeah. <laughs> Andy and I were talking about how there are a lot of Wisconsinites or former Wisconsinites that have come to McCourt. We think that's so interesting because it seems like there's a lot of people from Wisconsin or not from Wisconsin, but have come from Wisconsin that like come to D.C. I think that's kind of interesting. A lot of Midwesterners, too. I, I'm from Ohio originally, and it seems like everywhere I turn, there's someone from Ohio I'm running into. Yeah, you know, it's funny. Uh, my first, I mean, I did like Don, which is where we met. I did graduate school um, at Syracuse in the Maxwell School, but my first job was actually at the University of Michigan. Um, and then my next job was at UT Austin and then Wisconsin. So I felt like I spent most of my life uh, or my mid-career life, um, early and mid-career life in the Midwest, Texas. <laughs> um, so yeah, yeah. And a lot of my colleagues at McCourt have uh, some of that background as well, too. What do you both find unique about life in Washington, D.C.? Well, some of it, so it's a mixture of things. So one thing for me is because I spent most of my work career at big public R1s, some of it is about being at um, Georgetown specifically and um, being at kind of a, a private private university um, that has more, like, more of a liberal arts feel. My, my undergraduate degree was from Colby College in Maine, and it, it reminds me a lot of that. And I loved that experience as an undergrad. I really, really loved that. So um, there's a lot at Georgetown that I really appreciate that feels nostalgic to me in some ways from, from when I was an undergrad. Um, but then professionally, it's really fun, uh, especially given the work that we're doing around administrative burden. It's just so much easier here to connect um, uh, to people in kind of applied policy circles, be that at think tanks or be that uh, right in government. We've been having conversations recently with people at OMB around some of the Office of Management and Budget, around some of the new um, uh, uh, kind of executive orders that are coming through from the Biden administration or talking to people at the Social Security Administration. Um, and, and it's just easier to do that when you're in DC. So if you do policy work um, in terms of research, it, it really is just different and really fun to be here. I think for me, um, sort of the, the some of the quality of life aspects that are maybe a little surprising coming from the outside, like the number of really great parks that are in the DC region, you can sort of go to a different park every weekend and not repeat for, for a very long period of time. The quality of food, which I think is itself sort of a, a reflection of the fact that DC is a pretty diverse place with a lot of uh, people from different backgrounds, including from outside the US. Um, and so you can eat really well in DC and even eat pretty cheaply in DC. And in the Georgetown area itself, you, you really have the sense of history, just walking around that neighborhood that you don't get many other places in the United States. Like there are a couple of places that you do have that sense of history just being present with you. But in the Georgetown neighborhoods in particular, you know, you've, you feel like you could be there in the 19th century or the 18th century and things probably don't look that much different apart from, you know, there's a banana republic over there, but um, the, much of the houses or like the place where President Grant lived you know, really makes it feel um, like like a place that's not similar to many other places in the United States. So switching gears a little bit, Pam, we know you are into running. 
Um, do you have any routes that you particularly like or that you would recommend to any McCorders who enjoy running as well? Uh, you know, um, I really like the Capitol Trails bike path, basically. That is, um, I'm pretty uh, boring in this way. I, I pick, <laughs> I have a route and I run it. <laughs> I was like this in Wisconsin too, also on the bike path. It, our house in Wisconsin was actually uh, abutted the one of the bike paths in Madison. Um, and so I am, I am so dull in this way. <laughs> I just run the same route. Yeah, what do you like about that route? Um, you know, I, you know, here's the thing I like about running is it's a way for me to like, um, uh, de-stress and tune out. And I listen to a lot of podcasts while I run. And so I don't have to think about it. If you're running city streets, for example, I do actually like when I used to travel to DC, I loved running around the mall. I'd get up early and I'd run around the mall and do that, those sorts of things or, or run along the Potomac. And that is amazing. Where I live now, that's not super feasible. Um, but it's mostly because I can kind of tune out and listen to podcasts and listen to music and um, just kind of, uh, uh, it's a nice transition, especially during the pandemic, actually. Um, it's been a nice transition. Like it's the end of my work day. I go for a run and then I come back and I feel like um, I, my, my evening can start. And it, it's probably a little bit better for me than um, cocktails. <laughs> <laughs> As a natural segue between work and uh, evening. <laughs> Those are good too, though. <laughs> um, this one's for both of you. Have there been any activities you and your children have enjoyed this past year that you think other families might also enjoy? We, we've taken a lot of walks. We've gone to parks. And, you know, I feel like we're hitting that part of the pandemic where our kids are just getting tired of going for walks, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> they, they, are, they have been on a lot of walks um, and, you know, at some point you just sort of run out of, of things to do. Um, I will say with my youngest, she's seven, we have watched a lot of TV together. So we went through all the Star Wars movies. We watched The Mandalorian together. We've now gone through, I think, about 18 of the Marvel movies. Um, and so, you know, we found things that we both enjoy and can watch together uh, pretty well. Our, our older daughter likes the Great British Bake Off, so we watched a few seasons of that. Um, and so, you know, it's it's sort of slim pickings at some point, right, that <laughs> there isn't a whole lot to do. And so you have to work a little bit extra to find some common things that you can do within the four walls of your house. The other thing that Don's not fessing up to that you will do with our seven-year-old is they play soccer in the basement. <laughs> <laughs> which, which my my seven year old likes me to ref because I'm like totally on her side. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's fantastic. Hey, and if she's working in a, a smaller space than maybe she's used to out of the park, she's gonna gain some skills. <laughs> and uh, when we're on the other side of the pandemic watch out. <laughs> Perhaps. Yep. We'll see. <laughs> well, so Don, you you watched Star Wars, you said were you a family who wanted to watch episode one, episode two, all the way to the end? Or did you watch the original movies, four, five, six, and go back? I think we started watching the most recent episode. So I so I think what's happened is I, I tried to get them to watch it in the chronological order of release. So starting with the 1970s version, and we may have gotten one in. And then we ended up watching the um, more recent wave of releases. 
And then we went back and did the 1970s versions, the other two, and then we did the early 2000 versions. So there wasn't there wasn't a whole lot of logic to it. Um, and we would, I, you know, I would try to sort of draw the connections um, uh, and say, oh, you know, this guy was Obi-Wan Kenobi and the other movie is just a different actor and so on. But I think it was mostly like what was available and what we wanted to watch, right? As opposed to here's the correct order. Um, I've tried to be a little bit more disp- disciplined with the Marvel movies and sort of saying, well, you can't watch Infinity Wars right away because nothing makes any sense. He got mad right? at you her have one to, morning. You have to... he, came, we keep, he came down one morning, like a Saturday morning, and she was watching one of them. And he's like, you can't watch that yet. We haven't watched X, Y, or Z. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he's very disciplined. You can't, like, you know, if you don't know who Doctor, uh, you know, Strange is, you can't jump into Infinity Wars right away, right? You have, so you have to establish some basic knowledge to really see the payoff there. Um, so, yeah, we, we, there's been a little bit of discipline on that. Yep. Are you a Baby Yoda fan? Yes. Yeah, that was a that was a big uh, that was a big challenge for the holidays. Pam was able to find one I did. baby Yoda. I found a baby Yoda for, <laughs> for a Christmas gift. The the other so. favorite, honestly, I think her favorite, the youngest Maeve's favorite um, activity associated with Star Wars is I bought her one of those lightsabers for Halloween. You know, just like the plastic ones, and she just likes to run around the house like chasing people with it, and that's. Probably, truthfully, the highlight of uh, Star Wars for her is <laughs> chasing people around the yeah, house. We've gotten much more use out of the saber lightsaber than the baby Yoda. Definitely. Yeah. <laughs> well, for this next one, I, I'm i super curious, and I think, uh, Pam, you maybe mentioned a little about this um, earlier, mentioning that you and Don met at Syracuse. Is that correct? Uh, yeah, we met in grad school. We uh, we uh, met in a qualitative methods course, which is kind of funny because I am very much a quantitative. That's where you get to meet the best people. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Especially because I'm entirely a quantitative methods person at this point. Um, but yeah, we, we met in a, in a class in graduate school. Um, we were in different programs. My PhD is in sociology and, and Don's is in public administration. Um, but there was a lot of Maxwell had a lot of like cross disciplinary stuff, so um, yeah, we met we met in grad school in Syracuse. Do you remember each other's projects from that class, or <laughs> has that all kind of floated away at this point? <laughs> I don't even remember my own project from that class. So. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe Don. Maybe Don can do better than I. Can. Uh, I remember mine because it, it ended up being part of my dissertation, but I have no idea what you did. So sorry. Yeah, <laughs> he can't help me out. <laughs> awesome. Well, we're uh, getting a little close on time, so we want to do our two quick wrap-up questions. Um, the first: How did you both get your start at the McCourt School? So uh, I think we we obviously we both arrived at the same time, um, and I think um, we came partly because McCourt was a newer institution and one that was growing and one that it felt like had a lot of opportunity uh, to come in as a faculty member and maybe sort of influence how this policy school would evolve, but also that it was in D.C., Right, so it had, you know, it's it's exactly the right place you want to be in if you want to shape policy and have connections to policymakers. But you're starting with, if not quite a blank slate, 
with a lot of room to maneuver and grow over time. And so you know, both of those things were appealing. And we, we had been at Madison. We took a year and went to uh, Oxford before arriving here. Um, uh, but w- when we sort of got here, I think we were pretty excited about just being on the Georgetown campus and, and being sort of in this very small, intimate setting that's also in the heart of D.C. And so, I, you know, I think that th- those were some of the pull factors for me, at least. Yeah. And some of them, some, one of the things that's nice when you move, we moved, I mean, we've moved a few times, but one of the things that's nice about moving when you're at our career stage is um, you're like, you're kind of expanding your networks in the sense that like, I still have collaborators uh, from my old institution, from prior institutions. Um, and it, it just presents like another new opportunity to kind of expand in terms of who you get to know and who you get to work with. Um, and it just opens sort of new doors, but you get to kind of maintain your your kind of o- old um, spots too. And that's, um, I think it's a function of the times in some way in terms of how we work. Um, and it's also just a function of moving when you're um, a bit farther along in your career. So it's it's really fun that way. And what do you guys look most forward to when we return on campus? Oh, I think in-person teaching. Um, you know, Zoom teaching, I, I feel like for, gra- you know, we have little kids. And so t- watching your seven-year-old trying to do Zoom school gives you an appreciation for how it's it's not fun when you're older to do Zoom. But boy, it's it's a little bit better. Um, but it's still not very, it's still not as much fun as kind of being in, in, in person with students and in a classroom and really getting to engage informally with students as well as our colleagues as well. Um, so I think honestly, just the people in, in some ways um, will be really, really nice again. Yeah, I, I'd concur. I'm really excited both to be in the classroom, also see our colleagues uh, I think part of what's magical about universities and why they've persisted is that you get a lot of research that just emerges from having smart people in in a physical vicinity with one another um, who might not think that they have connections, but then they start chatting in in the hallways or have a cup of coffee and bring together really diverse perspectives to, to a research project. Um, and that's that's... Again, something that's much harder to recreate in a virtual environment. Um, and I think, you know, uh, Georgetown is just like a physically very pleasant environment to be in. You're, you're amongst these beautiful buildings in this neighborhood. Um, you, you can walk and get a nice lunch in a lot of neighborhood uh, spots to eat. You know, it's, it's just a pleasant place to be. And so being able to sort of see students chat with them in person as well as colleagues and be in this really pretty beautiful environment. Uh, Those are a lot of the things I'm I'm really excited and looking forward to again. Well, just wanted to thank you both so much for taking the time to chat with us and coming on the show. Absolutely. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you again. And for McCourtcast, my name is Andy. And my name is Lucy. And we'll catch you next time. Thank you.